two sort of caveats before I get going. The first is, if you see me shaking, it's either because I've been on caffeine deprivation for about a week, and so I had my first infusion this morning. Um, so there's that. I'm not a Quaker. It's not me. Um, the second is, I thought about doing this entire talk with an English accent because I thought that it would be much more believable and you would think me much more credible. Um, but it would be hard to maintain it, so I'm just not going to even try. I'm going to be looking primarily at the Old Testament passage tonight, or this morning, and I'm going to start with sort of a confession. We've already confessed, so that's good. We've received some absolution. But here's my confession. I like Lent. Most, most people don't. I find myself at times in the midst of Christmas revelry, yearning for the discipline and starkness, the refining of Lent. But I am, by way of explanation, a second-generation Norwegian immigrant who lives, the kind who lives in Garrison Keeler's Lake Wobegon, who thinks camping in sub-zero weather is fun and remembers that his forebears thought it a lark to cross the North Sea and open ships on their way to plunder the British Isles. <laughs> As to my views on Lent, some might say they're un-American, definitely not enlightened, and probably not good for the economy. <laughs> the real God of this age. Lent, however, is serious spiritual business. It is a preparation Think of it as the labor we may choose to undertake in order to share in the birth and rebirth of Easter. It is the death and grave we may enter into so that we may rise again to our master's empty tomb. Be assured of this, that you must live a dying life. And the more completely a man dies to self, the more he begins to live to God. So penned Thomas Akempis in his imitation of Christ in the 15th century. He continues, Who has a fiercer, fiercer struggle than he who strives to conquer himself? Yet this must be our chief concern, to conquer self, and by daily growing stronger than self, to advance in holiness. Lent, then, is where belief intersects with action. Belief is what drives our actions. We are creatures who do, who act, who have agendas, because we believe in something. The question is, what do we believe? Abram in the Old Testament reading is absolutely a man of action and faith. If Hollywood were to make a movie of his life, I'm thinking Liam Neeson or Bruce Willis for the lead, men of action. I'm not sure what they look like with beards, but I think it'd be awesome. <laughs> Some of the high points of his life prior to this passage are his leaving Ur. He was called out of this evil place filled with false gods, pagan rituals, like offering one's children to the god of fire or temple prostitution to please Ishtar, the fertility goddess. God called Abram from this place and Abram left with his family and household, action spurred by belief. Into the desert he went, a place of winnowing. He makes his way to Egypt 
and pretends his pretty wife, Sarah, is his sister. Pharaoh takes Sarah into his household with an eye full of lust. He bribes Abram with livestock, and God ultimately extricates Sarah from Pharaoh's dishonorable intentions. And Abram is shown the door a lot wealthier. Back into the desert, the Negev with his nephew Lot. Family conflict ensues as the agents of these patriarchs fight over good pastures. They separate in peace. God promises Abram the land of Canaan, the literal promised land. Lot falls in with some bad guys, Sodom and Gomorrah, ring any bells, and later is captured by badder guys. Abram, with the men of his household, train for battle, defeat the bad kings, rescue Lot and his family and all of their goods. He takes nothing but what his young men have eaten, a magnanimous victor. He's blessed by Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and priest of the God Most High, who supplies bread and wine for the victors. This high point brings us to the Old Testament reading for today, Genesis 15. Abram is riding high. Wealth, success, a public blessing from a warrior priest, who some scholars think of, along with later New Testament writers, as a Christ figure. Abram receives a vision. He's not sleeping. It's not a dream sequence from a movie. God states a truth, capital T truth. His fidelity and care for Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram, a supremely practical, earthbound man, notes that he has no child. And that all he has will go to another of his kin, Eliezer of Damascus. His flocks abounded. He was weighed down with gold and silver, but he was poor. Abram measured wealth in children, and he had none. He was a man who understood, like we have such difficulty in doing, that it is God who makes heirs. It is God who opens the wombs, and God who closes wombs. It is God who who gives life. God had already promised Abram that he would be the father of a great nation in Genesis 12. Just as the consummation of Lent, that is Easter, is the promise of new life, God promises Abram an heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Still conversing with Abram, God brings him outside. He takes him out to see the heavens and number the stars. God further blows this octogenarian's mind when he tells him that your offspring shall be as plentiful as the stars. But a promise does not seem to be effective without belief backing it up. Abram believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. It took almost another 15 to 20 years or so before this promise took on flesh in the person of Isaac, born when Abram was 99 years old. And aside about prayer, you need to be careful sometimes what you ask God for. When a college friend and his wife were getting frustrated with 
and depressed after going to a number of fertility clinics in their pursuit of a baby, they asked me and my family to pray for them to conceive. At our sporadic family devotions, Sadie, my youngest daughter, consistently, faithfully prayed for them that they would have a baby. Within months, my friend and his wife conceived. Nine months later, they gave birth to healthy twins. He opens wounds and gives life. To return to Abram, he believes, but he doubts. Just like the desperate father in Mark 9, 24, who cries out to Jesus to heal his son who's, who's afflicted with an evil, tormenting spirit, Christ proclaims that everything is possible for him who believes. The cry of this father was the most honest response ever offered by a saint. I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Christ healed the child. Abram has no child, but he has promises. Promises of a son, an heir, and promises to inhabit the land of Canaan. He brings his honest doubt to God with a simple question regarding the land. How am I to know that I shall possess it? Prove it. He wants God to prove himself. A very human response. God's response is equally simple. A task. He gives Abram a task to perform. A covenantal task. In the ancient world, contracts were often memorialized with blood. A sacrifice to show the serious intent of the parties. God asks Abram to bring animals to sacrifice three years of age. This was to ensure the animals were mature and healthy, healthy, not sickly or weak. To have a good contract, one needed a good sacrifice. Abram may have expected God to act in some sort of pyrotechnic fireworks show, but God says, prepare a sacrifice. A common, almost mundane practice for the age. Perhaps a foreshadowing of Abram's near sacrifice of Isaac. Abram prepares the sacrifices and waits. And waits. And waits. Anyone ever had to wait on the Lord? He waits so long that the carrion birds, the vultures, the unclean animals come to feast on his sacrifices. I know from experience as a hunter who processes his own meat that it takes a while before the vultures will come to the carcass. Abram waits and watches and then drives the vultures away. I love verse 11. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. This verse highlights in a concise form a deep spiritual truth. Waiting on the Lord is not easy and requires vigilance. In spite of the weight and hardship, Abram is obedient. He heard the voice of the Lord, received the vision, and obeyed. He prepared the sacrifices and protected them. What assails your spiritual sacrifices? And how do you protect them? What sirens 
seek to distract you from your good and holy work? Is it vanity? Is it a desire to be accepted at any price? Is it false promises of love paid in the coin of a fractured self? When I read these verses, I cannot help but think of Mother Teresa and her quiet life of service and obedience. She heard the voice of God as a young woman. This letter to the slums in Calcutta. And then for the last 50 or so years of her life, she confessed in her letters, which she didn't want published, that she did not hear God's voice. She did not feel his presence or sense his touch. Year after year, the silence continued, but her obedience continued. Hers was not a faith of instant gratification. It was a faith of daily mortification. Yet she continued in her obedience like the faithful servant investing her master's coin in profitable endeavors unsure of his return. She acted on what she knew what she believed God had called her to do. If a bridegroom were to tell his new wife on their wedding day, I love you, and be silent ever after on the subject, we would think him a cruel husband and wonder how joyful the couple would be, how long the marriage would last. But God is God, and his ways are not our ways. He has no duty to explain himself to us. At times, the still small voice of God booms as with a megaphone or an obnoxious car's audio sound system at a stoplight. <laughs> the voice cannot be avoided. The bass shakes the fillings in our teeth. But God also speaks in the silence. The message that resounds in the silence is simple, almost insultingly so to our complex minds. Obey. We are called to obey his commands. Read the word, hear the word, and obey the word. The Logos, love the son he has given us. He does not desire slavish service or guilt-ridden service, or pharisaical service. He desires you. All of you. Not just the Sunday you, the Bible study you, the InterVarsity you, the Campus Crusade you, the Young Life you, the Prayer Time you, the Accountability Partner you, but the Saturday night drinking you, the gossiping you, the Monday morning cheating on your exam you, the lustful you. He wants all of you. And this list is not definitive either. But this is hard. This is not easy. I'm a weak vessel. God understands it's hard, right? The spirit is sometimes willing, but the flesh seldom is. And we do have an enemy, the devil, a real being who is not infinite, but finite and cunning. He prowls about like a hungry lion ready to devour you. And we must remember that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrestles with the issue of belief and faith in his book, Cost of Discipleship. If I had to pay a, 
uh, a royalty. I think I need to because I'm going to be pulling extensively from this. He starts out with this. And this is the harsh rebuke. It's not easy for me to hear either. He says, no one should be surprised at the difficulty of faith. If there is some part of his life where he is consciously resisting or disobeying the commandment of Jesus. Is there some part of your life which you are refusing to surrender at his behest? Some sinful passion, maybe, or some animosity, some hope, perhaps your ambition or your reason. If so, you must not be surprised that you have not received his Holy Spirit. That prayer is difficult. Or that your request for faith remains unanswered. Go, rather, and be reconciled with your brother. Renounce your sin, which holds you fast, and then you will recover your faith. If you dismiss the word of God's command, you will not receive his word of grace. How can you hope to enter into communion with him when at some point your life you are running away from him? The man who disobeys cannot believe, for only he who obeys can believe. The gracious call of Jesus now becomes a stern command. Do this. Give up that. Leave the ship and come to me. When a man says he cannot obey the call of Jesus because he believes or because he does not believe, Jesus says, first obey. Perform the external work. Renounce your attachments. Give up the obstacles which separate you from the will of God. Do not say you do not have faith. You will not have it so long as you persist in disobedience and refuse to take the first step. You have not got faith so long as and because you will not take the first step. Ardent in your unbelief. Under the guise of a humble faith. It is a malicious subterfuge to argue like this. A sure sign of lack of faith, which leads in turn to a lack of obedience. This is the disobedience of believers. When they are asked to obey, they simply confess their unbelief and leave it at that. If you believe, take the first step. It leads to Jesus Christ. If you don't believe, take the first step. All the same, for you are bidden to take it. No one wants to know about your faith or unbelief. Your orders are to perform the act of obedience on the spot. Then you will find yourself in a situation where faith becomes possible. And where faith exists in the true sense of the word, faith is only real when there is obedience, never without it. And faith only becomes faith in the act of obedience. Said differently, only the obedient believe. If we are to believe, we must obey a concrete command. Faith demands action. Martin Luther called the book of James the epistle of straw because of its emphasis on works and his concern that people would misunderstand its message and come to an incorrect understanding of salvation. I consider the book of James an epistle of muscle, which should be read in the context of discipleship. 
If you will, take a look at James chapter 2, 14 through 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abram, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. One is not saved by our own personal works. They are as dirty rags as described by Isaiah. We are saved by Christ's work on the cross. This is the only efficacious sacrifice. But true faith breeds, fosters, demands obedience. What we do demonstrates what we believe. I'm also reminded of the litany of the faithful in Hebrews 11. Chapter 8, or pardon me, uh, verse 8. Again, Abraham. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him with the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since, since she considered him faithful who had promised. The list goes on, if you want to finish the rest of Hebrews 11, of men and women of God who were faithful and obedient. What of the Assyrian Naaman who was told he would be clean of his leprosy if he would bathe in the river Jordan seven times? He did so and was healed. What of the blind man who was at Jesus' command took his spittle, mixed it with the mud, put it in his eyes and could see? What of the widow that cried out to Elisha who had lost her husband who takes every vessel in her home to fill it with oil so that she could save her children from slavery? What of the paralytic's friends who cleared a roof so they can lower their friend to sit at the feet of Jesus so that he could be healed? Their faith drove them to action. This is not their salvation. It's merely the evidence of it. 
Abram's faith and obedience brought about results. God accepted Abram's sacrifice. And his story is a foreshadowing, a preview of the history of the nation of Israel, the life of Christ, and perhaps our own, if we'll undertake the journey. Abram sojourned in Egypt, as did Israel, and Christ even, as an infant and child. Abram came out of Egypt, through the desert, as did Israel for 40 years, and Christ as well in his return to the promised land. There are more parallels worth noting, but for my purposes, think of Lent as the passage through the desert led by God's pillar of fire. We too, like Abram, can meet God in the desert of our lives in the season of Lent. We meet God in the wild and desolate places. Maybe it's because he's surrounded by his own creation. Perhaps it's because we're out of our element. Lent unsettles us. It's like a stone in our shoe. And God is comfortable with our discomfort if it will improve us. We step away from the noise and distraction of our ruthlessly busy lives, yet we fight the silence, the solitude, the healing of Lent because we fight Christ. We are rebels and our souls are lazy. As Francis of Assisi noted when he referred to his flesh, as brother asked. The God of Israel, Yahweh, desires fellowship with us, his people. Christ, only days before his crucifixion, yearned as all creation must have to gather Jerusalem's children together as a hen gathers her brood under her protective wings. He desires to give us rest, to lay his yoke upon us, which is light, and his burden, which is easy. But we must take the first step of faith, the step of obedience. Lent helps us to see these truths as we become more attuned and open to hearing the voice of God, even if it's still and small, or perhaps even silent. We must awaken our souls and feed on the goodness of God. We must learn to obey and believe. For we are not our own. A high price has been paid for us. And God sealed this bargain with his son's blood. A perfect sacrifice for weak vessels. Yet we have a high calling to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. Holy and pleasing to God. This is our spiritual act of worship. And it is good, pleasing, and perfect. One of my new favorite bands, Mumford and Sons, reminds me in their song, Awake My Soul, in these bodies we will live, in these bodies we will die. Where you invest your love, you invest your life. Awake my soul, awake my soul, for you were made to meet your maker. My hope and prayer for us all is that in this Lenten season, we will meet God and be consumed by Him as we die to ourselves one obedient act at a time. Amen.